What do you call that noise? Pop filters at the ready because this is a podcast about power pop. Apologies right from the start for the pandemic of plosives in the next hour. Uh, I'm Mark Fisher and this is What Do You Call That Noise? The XTC podcast. Today we're going to be hearing from Brian van der Ark of the Verve Pipe about his love of XTC and from Paul Myers about his love of power pop and just possibly his love of XTC as well. I'm thrilled to have them both with us today. But first, to whet our appetite, here's Julie Matthews, who's been rooting around behind the bar and riffling through the jukebox to match the perfect drink with the perfect song. What do you call that noise? My name is Julie Matthews, and I recommend pairing the wheel and the maypole with a vodka and orange. You get two songs in one, so why not join them with a screwdriver? Thank you, Julie. That sounds irresistible. A quick thank you to the fabulous supporters on Patreon who make this podcast possible. They include Pink Things, Humble Daisies and Knights in Shining Karma. And the Knights in Shining Karma will get a name check at the end of this episode. I'll just highlight one in particular. Jesper Kumberg is one of the newest Knights in Shining Karma, and he's been known to help Malin Kumberg run Adala Gard, which is a craft dairy, food crafts and farm shop on a 17th century farm in Billinga in Sweden. If you check out the website at aldegard.com, SE, you'll see it looks absolutely gorgeous and mighty tempting to order the honey, dried mushrooms and flavoured salt in the online shop. If you'd like to become a knight in Shining Karma, please head to patreon.com forward slash Mark Fisher. With me today is Melanie, who is in California, and she is the se- at the center of a Venn diagram featuring, you've got one circle with XTC fans, one circle with Powerpop fans, and another circle with people who are planning to launch a podcast. Uh, how are you doing, Melanie? Doing well, thank you. Really happy to be here. Great. Well, it's lovely to have you, and uh, we'll be talking again in a minute, and you, you can find Melanie on Twitter at uh, mixtape64, mix underscore tape64. And I'll come back to you in a minute, Melanie, to quiz you about your love of power pop after I've given a big welcome to Brian van der Ark. Good to see you, Brian. Nice to be here, Mark. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming on the XTC podcast and to Paul Myers. Welcome, Paul. Hi. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And the reason we've come together is a new book called Go Further, More Literary Appreciations of Power Pop. Paul is the co-editor and Brian is a contributor. So we'll be talking primarily about that. Um, XTC fans will know the Verve Pipe for their big, raw and robust cover of Wake Up on the Testimonial Dinner tribute album from 1995. Brian also collaborated with Andy Partridge on the song Blow You Away, which appears on the soundtrack album of music from and inspired by The Avengers. And that was the 1998 remake of the 1960s British spy series rather than the Marvel franchise. I have to be grateful to Brian here because at some point in the past 20 years, I'd forgotten why I had a soundtrack album to a film I'd never seen. And now I've remembered it's because Blow You Away is, is the reason. So, and so it's good to be. To be I'm not sure anybody actually that saw that song. movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I was probably one of the many people who didn't see that film. Um, the uh, Verve Pipe had a big hit in the US with the freshmen right at the start of their career and also had success with Photograph and Colorful. Uh, Then moving on to Paul. Paul is a songwriter, journalist, and author. 
He is the host of the Record Store Day podcast and the author of books about Kids in the Hall, Todd Rundgren, Bare Naked Ladies, and Long John Baldry and the Birth of British Blues. He is the co-editor of Go All The Way, a literary appreciation of power pop, which is the first in this maybe franchise, I don't know, yeah. uh, which yeah. featured chapter chapters on Blondie, Big Star, Cheap Trick, XTC, ELO, and many, many more. And so now he's the co-editor of Go Further, more literary appreciations of power pop, uh, which has chapters as, 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 as well as the one that we're talking about. There's stuff about uh, the Ramones and the Archies, actually, uh, and and uh, squeeze uh, the replacements and all your faves. Uh, maybe actually it'll be right to start with Paul because because I think one of the big questions that most many people would have is is in fact we've already had a bit of a debate on, online about the definition of power pop. I was trying to argue that Blondie was my idea of blond uh, of, <laughs> of power pop, and you were saying no, no, Blondie at the far edge, far far edge of a of, of a definition of, of of power pop. Where where, where do you have a neat succinct definition? Well, I, I will say at first, uh, S.W. Lawden is my co-editor. I should mention him because, uh, and a little bit about how the book happened is I was asked to contribute to a, uh, a previous anthology by Rare Bird Books uh, about progressive rock. And I wrote a piece about having grown up at that tenuous time when uh, I had started being, I was listening to prog rock, but then new wave, so-called new wave and punk came out. And that moment where you started to get interested in bands that had a little bit of the progressiveness and blah, blah, blah. And then XTC magazine, Susie and the Banshees and all those bands came along talking heads and, and Bill Nelson was doing XTC ish stuff. And it was like very interesting time and Eno and Fripp and then Bowie had gotten really kind of Berlin. And so for me, that kind of got me interested in this idea. And then I remember saying to the editors, we should do one of these about power pop because, and now I'm going to answer your question, because it's one of those terms that a lot of bands run away from because it used to, uh, frankly, ghettoize them uh, commercially. People would say, oh, great, the skinny tie crowd will buy it. No one else will. you know." And then uh, I remember Fountains of Wayne and Matt Marshall Crenshaw used to talk about don't call me power pop. And, and I thought, well, let's, let's talk about what it is but also let's talk about kind of what it is. And, but let's just talk about much like love is what I said, much like the definition of love, you find a million different answers <laughs> and also the definition of art. A lot of times people will say, what is art? And then, you know, art, does art always have to have a, an engagement factor? Does art always have to so, uh, be socially conscious? Uh, power pop to me, the commonalities are, and this is going by, you know, it is, it's an exciting beat. It's kind of a celebration of a, almost a post-adolescent moment uh, at its best. It's, it's Friday night and you're, you just got paid and you're, you're, you're missing somebody and you, or you're going to go see them and it's exciting. It's eternally Friday night in these songs to me. Uh, and the, there's a jangly quality to the guitars, but there's also crunchy guitars. It's often guitars. I, I, we're starting to get new definitions every day about non-guitar power pop, but, and there's often massive harmonies. And I think that, uh, to me, the massive harmonies are what really puts the pop in the power pop. And so you had, like, the Raspberries. You had XTC at their best. You had uh, uh, the records. the uh, And then that's where bands like Blondie come in because they have a massive harmony thing and, and that urgency. So there's a – and, again, it is kind of one of those things where we don't expect anyone to come away knowing definitively what it is. But we try to color – the broad spectrum of it by showing you different people's reactions in a kind of literary non-journalistic way. Did I explain it? I hope. 
It is. Yes, I think you're. Right. Yeah, perfectly. Uh, and it. Well, yeah. If it if it looks like power pop, if it tastes like power pop, if it smells like power pop, it probably is power pop. I think that's as close as definitely. Yeah. What do you call that noise? I mean, that's the that's the eternal question, right? Yeah. What do you call that noise? Well, I call it pop. So. <laughs> Uh, Melanie, you, on your Twitter profile, power pop is the first thing that you mention. Do you have a, a, a any more succinct definition than, than Paul came up with? Uh, no, Paul's definition was so fantastic. I don't think I can add to it, but I did want to say for me personally, power pop really resonates with my DNA. That's the only way I can describe it. It, it, it gets into your DNA. It hooks you in with the chiming guitars, ringing guitars, which I love, and crunchy as Paul said, the melodies, the hooks, the harmonies, it just, it just gets you, or at least it does for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and Brian, if, if I didn't know better, if I listened to the verve pipe, I would say rock before I said power pop. Is that unfair? That's not unfair at all. And that's exactly right. In fact, that, you know, the biggest album, the one that we sold with the freshman on it, you know, had very little harmony on it, uh, much to my disappointment. Um, but, you know, that these things that you're influenced by when you're growing up, you know, uh, sometimes don't translate the way that, you know, you think they should. And you have to hold back on these things. And as much as I tried to write power pop, I realized that I was a much better listener and uh, I can enjoy it, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in, in the book, you've just used the same word again. That word harmony comes up. It, harmony then is, is crucial to your definition of power pop. Well, it, it definitely is because I, I mean, I was introduced to harmony through Lawrence Welk, you know, the Lawrence Welk show. I mean, my folks were, you know, we were very religious, very Christian reformed family, and we weren't allowed to listen to secular music other than what was on Sunday nights with the Lawrence Welk show, you know, or, you know, I mentioned in the, in the essay, uh, the Ray Conniff singers, you know, these were all these vanilla versions with massive harmonies on these songs. And I absolutely loved them. I remember dueling banjos, for instance, was dueling vocals or dueling voices, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, that definitely, uh, you know, defines power pop in my book. Also, I think that Paul's right. The energy that you get from that. Now, I was energized by the harmonies always. I mean, you know, take a song, remember Beach Baby? Beach Baby, Beach Baby. You know, I mean, that was like, I was blown away by that. I'm listening to that on my little AM radio. You know what I mean? When (laughs) I was a kid and hearing that and going, what is this? You know, I was so excited by it, you know? So that to me was power pop, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. And, and, and Brian, if, if Wikipedia is to be believed, and often it isn't, uh, you and I were born a month apart. Oh, was that and right? I think, and I think that's significant to me anyway, coming from the UK, because it meant that I felt that I was always just a little bit too young for punk and maybe a little bit too middle class and a little bit too scared of it, <laughs> but it, <laughs> at, at precisely the right age for XDC, who, who I discovered in I've fallen by one name. Yep, I'm right there with yeah. you. It's exactly right. Yeah, and, and, and XDC bring, as you say, bring the harmony, bring the melody, but also enough of the angularness and the guitars and the, mm-hmm. and the yeah. angst that also I would have been listening, looking out for at whatever age I was then, uh, 15, 16. Right. Same for me. Absolutely the same for me. But I wasn't introduced until later. I'm a, I'm a late comer. To, I was a late comer to XTC. I mean, a girlfriend had given me a mixtape with uh, Love and a Farm Boy's Wages on it. And I was like, no, what is this? You know, which is like way late, you know? And I was like, wow, well, that's, this is great. What is this? And then went back and got to discover everything again. And I'm always envious of those people that are late comers <laughs> that get to go back and listen to all that and feel those feelings, you know? Um, and so that's, I mean, I was fortunate that it happened to me in that way, I think. 
you know. And, and, and Paul, if you think about XTC and you think about your definition of power pop, uh, XTC have got so many styles and so many different influences. Uh, is, is there a sort of classic power pop era for the band? Do you think it's all power pop? Is some of it power pop? I'm trying to try not to do long-winded answers on everything, but I'm a journalist, so I tend to do this. But I will say this. The first, first, thing, first, thing, first thing you should know, though, is that uh, in all artists, uh, there are. I've decided that power pop is a stylistic part of, of the whole. So there, there are very few. There are a lot of bands that are strictly power pop, but I personally, as an artist myself, I don't like to limit. I think it's a palette thing. I think like I could write a rockabilly song. I could write a punk rock song. I could write a heavy metal song. And when I choose power pop, I have a certain colors that I use. And given XTC to answer your question, I would say, uh, are you receiving me was the beginning of uh, a sense that they were trying to channel the 60s Hollies, Kinks stuff that and Beatles, obviously, but more, more like the Hollies, Who and Kinks uh, into what was the landscape of their times, uh, basically trying really hard to pull harmony back in much like the Buzzcocks did. Uh, and and so contextually, it's important to know that they're, the landscape they were in. So I'd say uh, go to, um, and then uh, certainly This Is Pop is a manifesto of that from the first uh, era. And then, but then also, I mean, later on when they started like letting their Duke's flag fly, they felt sufficiently comfortable to jangle themselves into things like Earn Enough For Us on Skylarking, which to me is yeah. a, that to me is uh, an archetypal kind of power pop song. Uh, and if I, if I really think about it, uh, probably No Thugs in Our House is, is kind of a power pop. It's more of like the Who does power pop. I mean, the Who were one of the first power pop bands. So uh, again, we, we don't strictly say that any band is a power pop band generally, except maybe even the Raspberries were not 100% power pop and Big Star journeyed into it. But but anyway, so there, there's the shortest answer I can think of right now. Great, yeah, yeah, it's really good, it's interesting. And uh, M- Melanie, do, uh, do you have? It's the same question for you, really. Do you? Where does your liking for power pop and like liking for XTC fit together? Is is it one and the same? Well, I can see how they could be classified as fitting into the power pop genre, but to me, they're just so much more um, because of the the genius, the musicianship, the brilliance, the arrangements, the the sheer magnitude of what they do. So I, I could I could see them classified as power pop, and I, I get those power pop feelings with some of the work. Like Paul said, "Earn Enough for Us" was actually in my mind as well as as classic there. But they're in a whole other stratosphere for me. Um, oops, pun intended. Um, because of just the brilliance of the musicianship. So I would say, yes, power pop, but to the thousandth degree, if that if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and it does. And Paul, uh, the fact that you've got a second volume of, of, of essays about power pop suggests, actually confirms that what the way this conversation is going, which is that it is a, a, a big pool and it can be defined in many ways. Did it feel like a second volume was necessary? It really did. Uh, you know, we actually, this is the second time we have XTC in the, in volume one, we had uh, David Yaffe's uh, excellent, I'm maybe pronouncing his name wrong. David Yaffe's Agony, uh, the Agony and the XTC, which had originally been published somewhere else. And I personally flagged it and said, we got to bring this in for volume one. And I kind of held off writing about XTC because I felt like uh, 
I felt like, I don't know why, I just felt too close to it. And I felt like it was kind of like, I think I had just done a lot of XTC writing before that. Uh, but, uh, and then we have Ryan's piece, which is excellent also. It's a different, and it's a different angle. And now I've forgotten your question. What was your question? Oh, just just the necessity <laughs> for a second book because there's so oh, many. yes. Well, and that's, and that is what I meant by Brian's thing is a whole different take on that. And, uh, and there were bands that weren't mentioned in the first book. Uh, and there was also writers who started coming to us when they saw that this book was happening. And there's a certain, like there's, um, I'm holding a list in front of me. That's why I'm talking away from my mic. Like Will Birch writes about the records. Now that's a guy, Will Birch is an authority on pub rock and other things as, you know, and it is a member of these bands. And so for him to, to you know, say, I have a piece on that. Well, yeah, if we have a second book. We're going to put him in. And then there's like Ira Robbins, who was one of the first writers about power pop in, with Trouser Press magazine. I just went, hey, we should get him, you know. And so then we and then uh, one of the first fanzines was uh, Yellow Pills, uh, which is the Jordan Oaks. And so we, he, you know, he actually said to me, you should have called me. And I was like, you're right. <laughs> I guess I didn't think of uh, a lot of people in the first round. So then, yeah, so then we we started sort of feeling out between me and Steve, uh, S.W. Lawden, that is. Uh, and we would like just, you know, we found people and that's how we found Brian, you know? So it's like just because the net got cast out uh, a little bit. And we had to do it kind of on our own rather than uh, open call because it would be kind of a nightmare. We do tend to curate these things. So anyone who's in here has been like discussed and vetted before they've even been asked. Uh, or if they come up with something that we think, oh, I guess they're not a writer you know, they had all the good intentions, but we really wanted the literary part of this to work. So, so it is, yeah, he could go on to a third one. Michael Chabon, the novelist, wrote about Big Star in the first one. So, like, I, I, we could go wide on this thing, you know. And I'm just thinking, Brian, from your point of view, it's a very, well, Paul's just used the word literary. It's, it's a very beautifully written piece, but it's also very personal and true and 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 Paul was saying that he he obviously could have written about XCC himself but it feels like it's somehow too too precious to, to people sometimes if you I'm not saying XCC especially in this but you know if it's your favorite band or one of your favorite bands it's a bit like going naked in public did you did you hesitate before writing it was it it was a tricky thing to write I did it without any hesitation I I still think about that time that I spent with Andy and how important that was to me um, as a songwriter and at this, the, where our band was at that time, you know, we had, I think we had just, you know, we knocked you two off the number one spot, you know, so you're, you're like, you're like, I mean, this is a dream world for a kid from Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, especially one that didn't listen to secular music growing up, you know, or wasn't allowed to. So to be able to be in a position where, uh, I might be able to write with one of my idols. I can, I, I mean, he's my top, he would be my top three people to go and, and meet with and to sit three feet away, you know, with a microphone in between us and to just, and to listen to him play and sing nonsense lyrics, stream of conscious, to, to see what comes out and what fits. And I'm like, oh my God, I do the same thing. He does it in a, you know, on a whole different yeah. level, believe yeah. me. Uh, but to have that experience, I was so excited about it, by it. But also it, it was, you know, it, besides the fact that that experience was very humbling just to be there, right. to, to recall those memories is very humbling as well. 
because you walk away now in hindsight and I go, you know what? I was never able to capitalize in any way, in any commercial way with that. We wrote a song that I love. I felt great about, and I still had such a hard time getting my band on board with the harmonies and doing the things that we love to do. You know, Adam Schlesinger, I don't mean to go too long either, but Adam Schlesinger, who unfortunately passed of COVID um, mm-hmm. on April 1st last year, he he produced our album called Underneath, which was uh, three or four years later. And finally, we got to add the harmonies and stuff, and there was no yeah. resistance. In fact, he supported it, and he got in there and you know, said, try this and try this and try this. So, you know, and unfortunately, that was the album that was released geez, a week after 9-11. So there was no promoting it. And it was like, oh, well, that's, you know, so I've already been through kind of that ringer. So for me to like recall these things and to write about it, I jumped at the chance, you know, very cathartic too. You know, I mean, loved being able to write about this. I just want to say, I just want to say to Brian, two things about, uh, A, I am super jealous of, but I, I know, I knew uh, Adam, <laughs> I knew Adam and I know Andy, but I've never worked with either of them. And to me, that is, my hats off to you just as a life uh, experience. And secondly, I just want to say when I first moved to the United States uh, from Canada, from Toronto, and I was driving to visit, um, my brother was living in Southern California at the time, and we were driving down Highway 1. And that's the first time I heard the freshman on the radio. And I remember saying, oh, so that's what's happening in America. It was like one of those things where I guess the song hadn't broken in Canada yet or something, or maybe it had just come out that That week. could be, yeah. And I, I was like taking note of the band name when, because like, in those days you'd have to wait for it to end. I could right. just shazam it. Yeah. Uh, this is the 90s. <laughs> that sounds like so, a, yeah. a scene from a film. <laughs> yeah, no, the autobiography of Paul Myers. That's what's happening in America. Yeah, yeah. He's like, sign that kid. No, but anyway, I just want to say that if I ever, I always said that if I ever met you, I would tell you that because it was it was just outside of Santa Barbara on on the highway. So I just remember. Yeah, it was just anyway. That's all. Is there any better way to hear that song? I don't know. I mean, if they, you know, yeah, you know, that's perfect. That's the perfect way. Yeah, it's true. You know? That's absolutely true. But it's so funny because our music was so lacking of the harmonies and that kind of thing. But we were, you know, that this the song, the freshman in particular, um, for us was about the only thing that was on, you know, top forty or modern rock charts then that had a linear story to it you know had this happened and this happened and this happened and these people did this and this and this you know and uh and we were fortunate that it did resonate with a lot of people because of that you know so excellent and the collaboration with andy came about through your record label is that right uh came through i believe it was emi publishing um and i hadn't known you know at that up up to that point i didn't know that you know that they were working on a new record um, and so my, immediately I thought, oh my God, I'm going to go right because they're looking for a single and we've got a single on the charts, you know, yeah, this is exactly. spectacular. Now I'm sure Andy didn't think that or whether he did or not. I, I, I mean, I'm very highly doubtful, but you know, the fact that they wanted me to go over there and write with them, they knew I was a fan. He had come and visit us in the studio. Like I said, in the essay, you know, to see, uh, watch us record a little bit with Jerry Harrison. Uh, so very flattered to be able to do it. Um, but the experience itself, I mean, I've, I've had nothing since then has compared to that I mean, other people's minds, maybe, but not to me, that was the ultimate, you know, are you normally a, a collaborative writer? I'm not, you know, it's funny. I'm just not. And, and I, I've collaborated, uh, just a handful of times, you know, our band was a pretty collaborative band, but, uh, but nothing like, no, I, I, you know, I wasn't the guy that they would go to, to say, go sit in a room and write something with someone. And I, 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 I that's just not me. I wouldn't want to do that unless it's Andy Partridge, 
like, you know. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah. I, I, it's interesting his, his own career because until the demise of XTC, he didn't collaborate with anybody and or very much. I mean, he produced people and, and did one or two things, but not in the way that he's done it post XTC as, as a sort of songwriter for hire. And, and I'm fascinated to know about how that process operates. And did you just sort of throw yourself into, into his shed and see what happened? Had to. That's all you do. I mean, all you do is you show up, he's got a cup of tea for you and you talk a little bit and you chit chat about what you're doing and what he's doing. And then he says, well, let's go out in the shed and you go out in the shed and, you know, and, and then you sit down and you, you take in the whole thing and you sit, you tell yourself, remember this, don't, you know, live in this moment, you know, don't, you know, forget about any of this and try to memorize as much as I could. And then to actually then have to play and have to do stream of conscious lyrics myself, you know, to try to see what the melody is going to be and what, you know, what the, what syllables are going to work with what we're doing. And, you know, that kind of thing uh, was very, I mean, as you can imagine, was very intimidating, but what, I mean, what an absolute pleasure. I mean, you know, I, I, there's, like I said, there's nothing to compare it to. And is there an ego thing as well? Because the, the, the two people who can do the job, but aren't used to working with each other and have got to sort of negotiate that relationship with each other and not be offended, but still, still feel creative and all the rest of it. Well, I don't think there was any, I mean, I had a tremendous ego back then because of the, you know, the status of the band, but when, you know, you, you go there with your. I guess not your tail between your legs. I mean, Paul would know a better way to put it. You know, the fact that you're yeah. there with open arms and going, please, master, teach me something. Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> the way you show up to the top of the mountain. You know what I mean? You don't yeah, go exactly. up to the top touching of the mountain the and go, hey, the, it's cool. Touching the hem of his garment. Yeah, yeah it's exactly yeah, right. You know, you don't reach that top of the mountain and go, hey, it's pretty cool up here. I'm just going to knock you off. You know, it's <laughs> like one of these things where I just wanted to learn, uh, learn from him. But, and also there's so much history with him uh, and, and you hear all of the stories, you know, you hear the, you know, the, you know, the Todd Rundgren recordings and, and this kind of thing. And, and it's funny, Paul, because when, after I read your book, uh, yours was the only, you know, the section on XTC and Rundgren was the only time that I'd read such an optimistic view of how Todd Rundgren felt. You know, everything that I'd read had come from XTC. No, I was optimistic too, but yeah, Todd Todd definitely was a huge fan. Yeah, I didn't get that from any of the, any times I read something about XTC's, uh, you know, uh, experience, you know, when they talked about it. Maybe I was just reading the wrong books. But so I thought I was going to deal with this, you know, a little bit angry, not angry, but, you know, very strict disciplinarian type of man. I didn't yeah. know I was going to deal with a guy who was really amiable and, and wonderful and funny and charming. Yeah, and, and, you know, and as Andy, as Andy has pointed out every time I've mentioned it too, like Andy, had, Todd wasn't friendly towards Andy. It, like, you know, and I have a lot of respect for Todd as a producer, but I know that his bedside manner can be uh at best brusque especially then then i mean and so he you know he did not uh he had his agenda and andy came in with open heart and did his thing but they just did just oil and water you know the sarcasm didn't well sit well with andy and i know andy listened so i'm just i'm trying to tell it in the most like the way that i know that andy uh, uh told it because he was there i wasn't uh, and, uh, you know, so, yeah, so, I mean, Todd earned the reputation of being difficult by, by being sarcastic, I think, but at the same time, Gregory, Dave Gregory will tell you, you know, that album is great because 
it got made because it got made basically it could have sounded different and andy will be the first to tell you that too uh but uh i think everyone agrees that it was a great record i mean i don't know uh, some xdc fans might not say it's their favorite album now because it's kind of an obvious album it's like saying the, the pet sounds is the best beach boys record so everyone's <laughs> gonna go i like sun <laughs> sunflower better or something like you know, like friends is my favorite beach boy record because i'm cooler than you you know but uh <laughs> you know so but i think if I, I would say Skylarking is an album I can throw on any time of the year, you know. Same so. here. And but Paul, did when you when you've dealt with Todd, do you have do you find him acerbic and sarcastic and all of those things? I did at first, and I just talked to him yesterday. And I will tell you this, Todd. I consider him a friend now, but I know the thing about Todd is he is uh, he's kind of a scientist, and he's. At that point in his career, when he was working with XTC, uh, and maybe even in the early 70s, he was kind of a wonder kid and kind of, you know, people brought Todd in to be the genius, right? Rocket scientist, so to speak, but he's more of a intuitive genius. And he's sloppy. He's, he, he loves throwing shit together. And at the same time, he's, he has a, a belief in how to make a record. And he got Bad Fingers record made that had Baby Blue on it. You know, when George had abandoned it, George Harrison and, and uh, Mal Evans and everyone had abandoned that record, Todd was brought in to play cleanup. And I think that the, he thought, and he did that with a Grand Funk Railroads, we're an American band. He took this thing and made it into something that was, you know, ready for the radio. And uh, so Todd's bedside manner was often like, and I've actually talked to him where I've said things like, so it sounds like you're doing this, uh, you know, have you recently discovered uh, sampling? And he'll go, no, I've actually been doing sampling since the eighties. If you really listen, you know, like, and I'm like, oh shoot, did I just like, did I just embarrass myself? And probably yes. I mean, but I will say this: I love Stephen Wilson's work, and I just interviewed Stephen Wilson, and he was the same. I, I put my foot in it a couple of times, and he was like, you know, I don't know, brusque would be the word for Stephen. He was very polite, but you know, people sometimes can. I I can't expect everyone to be friendly to me all the time, like super giving, you know. So. So I think Todd is, yeah, I, I could see how Todd would do that. And I say this as a guy who just talked to Todd Rungren yesterday, and I, I, I know that if Todd heard this, he would agree. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I imagine Brian as well, just having worked in the music industry, you've come across all sorts of personalities, and you might have been one oh of them. You were saying, so, you know, you, the ego goes to your head as, as you have a big hit. And maybe I'm not, I'm, I'm casting you in the in the role of the villain here but maybe you were difficult to get on with at a certain point but you, certainly you will have been coming across other people who were absolutely i mean i've come across many people that um that you know were very proud of what they're doing at the time and what they've done even though maybe they haven't done anything but we're not talking about that type of person we're talking about someone who is an absolute legend as a songwriter someone who I would never want to get, you know, Andy, you'd never want to get into a verbal battle with Andy. He's brilliant. His, his, you know, I mentioned the bullying, the English language, you know, and, and these kinds of things in the essay. And it's so true. This, you know, it's the, the Elvis Costello. I feel the same way about these guys who can, you know, who are uh, brilliant with the use of the language and how to twist and turn phrases and these kinds of things to make you think that go over a lot of people's heads. But these are the guys that I would never want to get into any verbal altercation with, you know, uh, my peers, the guys in my bands in the nineties, you know, I easily get into fights and <laughs> <laughs> often did, <laughs> you know, but, but 
there's a very it's a very true uh, portrait that you give of Andy of, of, of you the two of you going for a meal together and him saying to you just ask me anything you like you know wonderful that's, that's, he's I mean, a conversationalist isn't he that's the moment you know because sometimes I mean when you meet you know your idols you you're you know first of all you're like I don't want to say anything stupid you know just you know ask a few questions, but I don't want to embarrass them, you know, because sometimes you can meet people and you ask them questions and they don't want to talk about themselves. They want to talk about something else. Not to say that Andy just wanted to talk about himself, but I had so many questions and asked so many things that it almost got to the point where I'm sure it was obnoxious, you know, but he was <laughs> so gracious about the entire thing and wonderful about it. And it was just, a, I mean, that was the, probably the, well, it was the whole thing was a thrill. I can't say what was more mm. thrilling, have him play guitar and sing nonsense lyrics or or actually tell me these great stories, but just loved it. He's very giving with the fans. Uh, when he was running the Twitter account, it was great. Like, And you see all these newbies coming to him and saying, like, I just discovered XDC. What was going on when you made this record? And he'd write, like, seven tweets back. And, you know, you know I thought it was really good. I really enjoyed his interaction with the fans. Again, I think gracious is the word with the fans. He definitely was. Uh, and I, I, I followed him on Twitter, too, and went back and forth and, and enjoyed that immensely, you know, and was sorry to see him go. Well, I wanted to say to Brian that I'm so happy that you got to have that experience. And I can only imagine how absolutely surreal and amazing that must have been. I'm just, wow. And that I, I love the song, Blow You Away. Just wanted to mention that. It's fantastic. Thank you. Well, that was, uh, that, you know, that came from Andy. The original idea came from, came from Andy. And, uh, and I was able to write the lyrics and something that was, you know, it became satisfactory to him. And I was like, well, let me go record <laughs> this with the band and let's see what happens, you know. And we did. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I That's loved great, how great. it came out. Unfortunately, it was in a movie that was in theaters for, I don't even think a day. I think, <laughs> I'm not even sure one showing made it to the theater. I think they probably stopped mm-hmm. the reel, the second reel they stopped. But, uh, but the fact that I was able to, uh, to do that and, and look back and, and go, well, I'm very proud of the work that I did with Andy, you know. And I haven't done anything like that with anyone since, you know. And you, mm-hmm. and you describe writing the lyrics on on the on the plane on the way home. I think uh, so, excited, so, yeah. so. So what what did you have at that point when you came to write the lyrics? Did, was there any lyric in there? Was because it's unusual for Andy to to be doing music entirely the, abstractly. Right. He had the chorus. He had the chorus, and he had the beat, and he had the whole thing. You know, it was a bit of a T Rex thing, and it was it was terrific, and it was energizing. Uh, and I immediately could hear the harmonies that I wanted to put on it. And uh, and then I just took it and went with the, uh, he sang kind of the melody in the uh, in the verses too. And it was easy once I realized what it was to ignore, you know, the idea of the conceptually of what the song is, is to ignore everyone else. And just let's just, you blow them all away and let's start you and I, let's start all over again and get new friends and do our own thing and that kind of thing. And, and the attitude that I had at that point was this could be written for me, about me and my saying to everyone else, I'm going to start all over again and I'm going to be in a pop band and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to write harmonies and, you know, and great, you know, drum beats and everything and make that my, that's my new calling, you know, and yeah, it didn't work mm. out that way. But I'm, I'm interested in what you're saying as well about the rest of the verb pipe being resistant to some of these things that you were bringing in, because 
if, if you were using the same argument about uh, XTC and somebody brought in an idea to them, I think XTC would have gone with it because th there was something about them that was pliable, malleable. They would they would take on folk one day, they would take on jazz another day, they would move to psychedelia another day and, and, and very open to other ideas. Was that less, right. less your experience with the verb? We uh, were that band before we got signed to RCA and before Villains came out and it was one of the, you know, one of the post-grunge type you know, albums with the, you know, guitar in the left, a guitar in the right, you know, the, you know, yeah. the drums up the middle and that kind of thing, you know, and then one single vocal, that's where we found success. And I don't think anybody wanted to go in any other direction, you know? And so everybody in the band was a fan of, of Andy and XTC, everyone, uh, but they just didn't see it for us. Maybe they were smart enough to know that, you know, that wasn't what we were meant to do. You know, we were meant to go on and be an American rock band and uh, and perhaps they were correct. Uh, but, you know, it, sometimes you pick, you know, you pick the path of least resistance. And that, you know, that's my fault, I think, that I didn't fight and fight and fight and say we need to do this. However, we I, I really love the albums that came out after that. So, you know, uh, after much argument, you just go, well. Let's just do what we do and the paycheck will come and then someday I'll get to do what I really want to do, you know, so. Well, I don't know if you know, but Andy is planning to re release for the first time a lot of the collaborative collaborative songs that he's done with people over the over the years. And he's going to call it My Failed Songwriting Career. Oh, great. Wow. I'm, I'm so thrilled to be a part of that. <laughs> Wonderful. Because <laughs> none of these, with one or two exceptions, not, none of them have been as successful as they deserve to be. So he's... Can he call it the failed marketing that. of my, you know, of my collaborations? Does he have to say my failed song right now? <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, self-deprecating to the last. <laughs> That's exciting, though. Uh, those tracks coming out, like, like as as a one as a one thing, yeah. Because yeah, I always loved it when uh, was it? Um, he did some stuff with Stephen uh, Duffy, that uh, Lilac Time stuff, and. And you, I love picking out the the XTC parts, like picking out the Andy. Oh, that's clearly the Andy part. You know, I might be wrong, actually, because I guess sometimes <laughs> maybe Brian could speak to this. Did you ever go to him and say, like, something that you think he would like based on what you like about him? Like, do you ever, like, come up with an XTC part to give him? Like to like to try him out and say you like this. It sounds like you. Like I don't. Like, how does I that, tried like, that when you... we were when we were seated yeah. there. I tried to do that, and you know the the honesty that came from him was <laughs> palpable. I guess you know it was it was no. I don't I don't like that. I don't like that chord there. I don't know why you're you know. It was almost like why are you playing that chord? It doesn't fit. You know better than that. Stop doing that, bad boy. You know kind of thing yeah. so you know he doesn't suffer it he doesn't suffer it when he does when not the, suffer the it at the issue at hand because the the peace is more important than any personal relationships at that moment absolutely right? yeah. and yeah, isn't yeah. that really the case i mean isn't that why you know the best music survives <laughs> you know is well, yeah. you know I mean, the peace is above everything you know, you know? And I, I, on a sort of general level i think that one reason that xdc stayed together as long as they did I mean, people complain that they didn't last even longer, but they stayed together for a long time, really. And I think it's to do as, as human beings. They're very honest with each other and they tell each other like it is. And and it clears the air, you know, it gets out, they say it, it gets out, and then they can just move on to the next thing. They don't sort of sit around harboring grudges. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like that's the same with, with with songwriting even more so, just like it's either it's either working or it's not working. Get on with it. Right. I wish more people could recognize when it's not working. 
you know, mm-hmm. we could save a lot of time and money in the studio if somebody just said this, this really isn't working. But a lot of times you have to massage each other's ego, especially when you're collaborating, you know, that wasn't the case here. If anything, you know, he, I, you know, he, anything that any ego massaging that I did to him was not meant to be ego massaging. It was, you know, for my own benefit to find out again from the master, how do I get to these places faster? How do I get to this? How can I pick up the guitar and immediately know what melody is going to work perfectly with this until the point where you take it to right to the edge where you get to the middle eight and you say, I need to take it to a new place. And to do that while playing, you know, and recording in a six, seven minute session for one song is what these recordings that I still have to hear that. And it just happened spontaneously. He knows where to go that's exercising that creative you know side of the brain the right side of the brain that's you know he knows where to go quicker than i know where to go he doesn't labor over it Mm. you know which which i really uh i really recognized and then i recognized when i listened to the again listened to the tapes before i you know wrote the piece and and other fascinating and worthwhile bits of songs or completed songs on on the dat tapes that that uh, deserve to be heard because you got one song out of it are there others in there i think there are others i you know i would have to get back with andy and say you know where were you coming from uh from at this point and this and this but i i've always felt like it's kind of I guess I've been rather selfish with the whole thing. <laughs> you know, I think about it. <laughs> when I think about it, I, you know, people always ask me, oh, you got you to gotta play me this. I never even played this tape sessions to the band. I mean, I've got 40 minutes or something of, you know, an hour's worth of songs here, and I've never even played it for the band. I guess I've always just kind of kept to myself, you know? And uh, I guess I'm just also now just realizing that how selfish, yeah. how selfish I really am about. I, I would quite happily dedicate an entire podcast just to playing that tape. <laughs> oh, there's never it would have never happened. Definitely. Never. <laughs> I have a I have a tape somewhere of Andy. I was recording a phone call for I was writing for uh, Crawdaddy Online magazine, and I I said that I was fascinated with Mermaid Smiled or something like that, and and he he wanted to show me the chord on the phone. And he and he was like it wasn't a Zoom call it was just a phone and I have a recording of him playing the guitar for me that is like like I know I I would only show it to some friends you know it was just like uh, this is bizarre but you and I think I had a similar, I have other tapes like this over history like somebody Todd Rundgren playing me a piano part or something and it's always amazing you always think this is my secret recording that and you don't almost want to not share it because it's like. What if they? What if people go? They're, that's not very good, or or whatever. That sounds really hacky, or whatever. Like who knows? And you're like, you never invite it. Just yeah, like, just yeah. keep it to yourself. It's Unless your moment. You, it's, um, yeah. Know. Unless you make it your ringtone or something, you know. Keep it. <laughs> you know, I keep know. it to yourself. I know I talk too much, but I wanted to tell you a story, if you don't mind, about how I first met Andy Partridge. It's so it's convoluted. I was living in Toronto, and I was in a band called. Um, uh, the uh, what was that band? Oh, Lifetime's Nine. And we were going to go to London, and I really wanted to get in touch with Andy Partridge. Uh, I knew he was in Swindon, but I was going to go to London and maybe take the train. You know that whole thing. And I, my, I was friends with Mary Margaret O'Hara, and uh, like distantly. And I called her and I said, "Hey," or I think I saw her somewhere. And I said, "How do I? Get, you're about to go work with Andy. Can you? Can how do I get in touch?" And then her manager said, "Yeah, here's here's the phone number," and I put it away. I didn't know how those sessions went. And I think if you're following the XTC story, you know that there was a lot of 
consternation about what happened with the Miss America album by Mary Margaret O'Hara. But so I get to London. And by the way, I have the same birthday as Andy Partridge, November 11th. So I'm in London on my birthday and I'm in a pub and I, I decide I'm going to call Andy Partridge to wish him happy <laughs> birthday. I've had a few. I don't drink anymore. <laughs> In those days, I this may be one of the reasons I don't drink anymore. But I called him and I and I just can imagine what he thought. Like getting a call, hi, it's Paul from Canada. It's anyway, anyway. So I said, I'm thinking of coming out to Swindon, and, you know. And he was like, um, Sure, okay, but give us a call, you know, like, like make sure I'm here, you know, that whole thing. And I'm like, okay. And then that week, my friend is a journalist. Uh, was doing something at Virgin Manor. He was interviewing, actually, I remember who it was. It was Heaven 17, he was, uh, which was the offshoot from the original Human League. And uh, and we were going to the Virgin Manor, Virgin Records, and I, I go to the office with him, and I joke, maybe I'll see Andy Partridge. And I go, and I'm sitting in the reception area, and my friend, who's a journalist, says, you're not going to believe this. Andy Partridge just went down that hallway. And I know he's not kidding, because I can tell his voice. So I, I walk into the offices. I don't know how you could do this now. <laughs> I walk through, I'm already in the building. So I guess it was easy to do this. And I'm walking and I see him duck into the men's room. And I think, oh, I guess in like, like I went in the men's room and I pretended to pee and I stood there <laughs> and then he's finishing and I'm by the sink. And I say, Andy Partridge, it's Paul. I called you. I'm sorry. I had a few drinks, but happy birthday. I was the guy from Toronto who called you. And he was like, and I just remember, I, I do a bad Andy Partridge impression because I'm fascinated with the, that accent. But, but he said something like, he goes, I'd shake your hand, but obviously they're wet right now. And like, and like, and, and he said, <laughs> and then he said, let's get out of here. There's not enough room to swing a cat. And I'd never heard that expression before. So he walks us out to the press area and he's very excited. I guess this was 84. So, because he gave me this world over uh, as a single, he went to the press area and gave me a bunch of XTC records and, and promotional materials. And I guess what I learned later was I think he was in there to talk to them about putting the Dukes of Stratosphere out because it came out shortly after that. It must have already been it must have already been planned, but he didn't leak it to me. And then I get home to Toronto and I'm I'm like, I got all these XTC records given to me by Andy Partridge. And he was he was great. Like he sent me on my way. Like he he it, it will never it will never not be the coolest day of my life, you know, like and to be at the famous Virgin Records Manor, you know, the white building that they used to have that Richard Branson first started. But anyway, so it was really fascinating to me that how that happened. And then I've interviewed him several times since, obviously, for the Todd Rundgren book, as well as various articles for magazines and stuff. But um, just fascinating to me that he was so kind and that he just grabbed a bunch of promotional records and gave them to me. It's brilliant. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Yeah, no, that was a, uh, wow. No, no, nobody should apologize for telling stories on a podcast. I think it would be a very boring <laughs> podcast if they didn't. <laughs> that, uh, talking about that era and that album, then, uh, Brian, you also did the, the cover of Wake Up, uh, which you sort of rocked up and you you made it your your own was was that an obvious song to choose of all the songs you could have chosen i think it was i think that one for me was um was one of the first ones that when you listen to it um with the headphones on like i did when i you know when i was a teenager and had the beanbag chair and the whole thing and things were happening (laughs) that guitar that was going back and forth you know was (laughs) i was like oh i want to do something like this and then the opportunity came up to actually do you know, do a tribute, uh, do a song as a tribute. And we thought, well, let's do that. And we'll do it the way we're, you know, the way our band is now, grunge it up a little bit. But then we also did 
we uh, we heard a ver- I don't know if you you guys must know Blue Beret. Remember Blue Beret? Yes. Yeah, of course. We did a version of Blue Beret in that same recording session, and that's the one that I really loved. Um, I think overall, uh, out of the two, that's the one that I really wanted to release. But everybody loved Wake Up, and so we went with that. So I was, I have that. I have a poster in my room, a testimonial dinner, um, right here in my studio, right, right next to me. You know, and, uh, and Blueberry, right. your version of Blueberry is still un, unreleased. Then, but, oh yeah, Blueberry, yeah, no, it's not released. It hasn't been released. I don't. It's another one of those things that I hold very precious. When when they chose Wake Up, and I loved Wake Up too, but uh, when I lost that battle. I said, I'm going to take my ball, Blue Beret. I'm going to take my Blue Beret yeah, and go yeah. home. You know, mm. I, don't think, I don't think anybody's heard it since. And, and when you get the chance to pick apart a, uh, anybody else's song, really, you, you can, it, uh, to, 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 to cover it. It's an, uh, a unique opportunity to discover the, work, the inner me- mechanics of a song. Was, was, was that the case with Wake Up? That, that it, was, it was a long time ago to remember, but, you know, to focus on what was actually going on in the, in the original recording. I remember I was having a very hard time with the timing of the vocal. And I think if I listen to it now, I'll probably, I'll, I'll have to give it a listen and I'll know that I did it wrong. I came in at the wrong point and we, it was stop. No, that's not right. Stop. No, that's not right. You know, my drummer was making him crazy. And I think we ended up, you know, back then it was before Pro Tools. You couldn't just move something, you know, and cut and splice and move it. So I think we ended up just saying, okay, well, he's never going to get it right. Let's just keep it the way it is, you know. And right. uh, But, you know, for me, it was about the attitude of the song. And I love the lyric. And, uh, you know, so why not? And the opportunity to work. At that point, we weren't even signed. So, we, you know, we got on a compilation where they might be giants and, you know, Joe Jackson, mm. of course. I'm such a huge fan of Joe's too, so. Mm-hmm. What I was thinking of, Brian, this is a two-part question. I'll ask, uh, it's a sort of before and after. It strikes me that uh, the Verve Pipe, you, you, you are your own band. You, were, you had your own style and it doesn't, uh, it, 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 you don't sound like an XDC tribute band for sure. So right. I'm just wondering how you think uh, this band that you were, you were, as you say, all of you were, were so fond of, how how did did it influence your music in a kind of attitudinal way? The approach to lyrics or to to uh, I, I, I some for example I sometimes think and this is relevant to power pop as well. I sometimes think that the the bands that I like are the ones that don't sound like XTC, but they do sound like they've got the same influences as XTC and the same attitude as mm, XTC, sure. which is a sort of power poppy Beatlesy sort of attitude right. to, to to noise and to to harmony. But I think for me, I think for me it was the lyric, and I think that I've I'm uh, I'm very aware of the lyric, uh, and I want people to hear us and be aware of the lyric. I mean, our biggest song was a story, and it was all about the lyric. And I know, uh, you know, when you listen to an XDC uh, record, um, especially when you get past, like when you get into uh, English Settlement and beyond, those lyrics, the lyrics on Skylarking, there's so much attention paid to the lyric. Every about every single line uh, fits perfectly, and you you're taken on this journey, you know. And you know, oranges and lemons, the same thing. I mean, just brilliant lyrics. So I think knowing that the 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 lyric is so important to a song and the story to a song. I think that's what I took um, and was able to bring to my band. 
you know, and I think that's where the influence, you can actually hear the influence if you pay attention. Um, choosing exactly the right word. Uh, each one of these songs is a puzzle piece, you know, I mean, uh, you know, is a, is a puzzle and, and I'm missing this piece and I could be missing this piece for a year and finally find that right phrase and that right piece to fit it in. And there's nothing like it when that happens. The whole, the sky opens up. It's so glorious. And I can imagine that Andy gets to that puzzle piece sooner than I get to that last puzzle piece. But that feeling is probably the same. So that's what I took away from him is the importance of the lyric, I think, overall. Mm -hmm. And and it's also interesting how that emerged in XTC's career because they, they started off in that 1977, 78 era doing very short, sharp, onomatopoeic, on the cusp of nonsense it doesn't it isn't quite nonsense it does make a sort of sense but it's very very brief that you know that uh, 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 and uh, right for the time right for the songs uh, so interesting that then that developed and developed and developed through the succeeding an, um albums paul looks like he's going to no no i'm just nodding in approval i would say that non non non-linear is the word i was thinking of for those early and maybe expressionist in a talking heads kind of way the early stuff it was much more like or even post david bowie in terms of throwing out um seemingly disjointed imagery that creates an overall thing you know like a collage rather than a story and then the linear linear storytelling i was just wondering if anyone else has thought about this but i'm trying to figure out i think Possibly Black Sea has elements of linear storytelling coming in with like, you know, uh, paper uh, notes and was it paper and iron or was it, uh, uh, or Tower of London? Like they suddenly become an actual story, and then English Settlement is very much about. You mentioned No Thugs in Our House, which is the probably most yeah. complete story that they. Yeah, and I feel like you know, and all those Runaways and all the you know we're talking. That's not Andy, obviously, but uh, the. Um, you know, and of course, Colin was always bringing the, um, you know, like Nigel's much more of a straight story than a lot of the XTC at the time. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, I think at that time, this is my controversial opinion that Colin, much like George Harrison, uh, had to sort of make his early songs fit with Andy. And then and then at a certain point, I think rewarded by the success of the Colin songs, he was allowed to flourish more until you had a song like uh, Grass that didn't sound like XTC, didn't sound like Andy's XTC. But I mean, I was really happy that Andy was going in the same direction with him, you know? Like, and of course, Greg's there playing guitar, making everything a million bucks. So. Colin, Colin can paint a picture with very, very few words. And it's, it's, I think it's almost like it, it doesn't give you quite enough information. So there's always a bit of ambiguity there, but there's yeah. enough to, and I was happened to be looking back at, uh, had reason to look back at some, the lyrics for the album, the first three albums. And there's, there's hardly anything of them, Andy and Colin. You know, they're on a page. They're just, they just seem to be a few lines. And I'm thinking, but this song is really big in my head. It covers such terrain. And yet they manage somehow in a very few amount of words. And obviously yeah. all the music goes around it. But to yeah. convey something that seems much bigger to me than, than, than is, would be apparent. I would say, too, that if you look back at the early recordings, that's where it fits into the, the power pop genre you know how paul was describing it with that drum beat and the excitement and the whole thing was more important than the lyric the lyrics seemed to be rhythmic and uh and it didn't you didn't you know you weren't if you were getting pumped up to go do something and have fun and you're you know mm-hmm. you're with your friends and you're drinking and it's like you're you know you're listening to drums and wires and and this kind of uh this kind of thing um you wouldn't necessarily 
you know, need to know what the story of the song was for it to matter in that way, you know. Mm -hmm. But as you go through the albums, if you look at the album and, the, you know, the order of everything, you see, I wouldn't say growth because I, how do you say a band like XTC grew over the years and got better? But I will say you can see where, you know, Colin's songs were a bit more uh, poppy in the beginning, you know, or a bit more, uh, yeah. you know, I, I hate to say top 40-ish poppy, but I mean, you know, songs that were more accessible to the average person. And then Andy kind of, you know, halfway through started coming around to those types of songs, you know, and then to the end, all the way to Apple Venus, you know. Uh, where you go, Jesus, everything, everything on here, brilliant all the way across the board. Lyric, you know, you, you've got all of the elements that you want sonically, uh, per, sonically perfection. And, and I'll tell you this, when I sat and when he, when he played me the demos for that in Swindon, <clears throat> not much had changed from the demos to the it's actual end of the album. You know, it's I mean, Apple Venus, was, yeah. Yeah, Apple Venus, yeah. It was meticulous. And I remember just... I remember um, that feeling of uh, this feeling of elation coming over me when Nights and Shining Karma came on and just the lushness of that. I get chills now just thinking about how I just sunk into that chair and was like, oh, my God, what is this song? Who writes this? You know, and for mm. me to be able to be privy to that uh, was just I mean, I like I said, you know, indescribable as you can tell i'm faltering over my words because it's hard to even i'm getting a contact high just hearing it oh it's just <laughs> spectacular oh one of the things i love about xtc in addition to all the brilliance and everything you've mentioned is when you brought up black sea paul um is there a musical expression for when the music of the song sounds like what the song is about for example like rocket from a bottle this is hard for me to articulate but the music and the song expresses what the song is about you, i'm not articulating this gonna, very well i'm but... gonna let brian i'm gonna let brian take a crack at it after me but i just want to say that i feel like you're talking about uh something that maybe advertising people call synergy or uh you know the idea of symbiosis between the thing but quite often a lot of songwriters employ a deliberately non a compatible sound, like a sad melody for a happy lyric or a happy mm -hmm. lyric for a sad melody. But in the case of something like Rocket from a Bottle, it's, uh, it's actually relevant to what we were talking about, my definition of power pop, for instance. I use the word euphoria a lot. And Rocket mm -hmm. from a Bottle gets across a kind of, um, it's it's like the happy side of angst. It's, a, it's an anxiety born of anticipatory delight. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Boy, right. someone's a writer. Uh, anyway, sorry, but, uh, yeah, yeah. So that, that's, but maybe Brian can take on this question. Well, there's a couple of, I don't know what the, uh, what the term would be. I, I mean, I know exactly what you're talking about and what works in production to say, well, this song sounds like it should have this, you know, uh, and I think it's going to work well with the lyric content. I, a good example, I think is Siegel screaming, kisser, kisser that, you mm. know, the first time I heard that I went, wow, that sounds like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And another one is the man who sailed around his soul, the same type of thing. You take that in and you go, well, what's this sound like? You know, and that when I read the lyric and listen to the lyric, it's exactly what, you know, I would imagine the song should be. So, and I think that has a lot to do, and Paul could probably tell you this too, it has a lot to do with the producer and the producer being able to, uh, to take these songs and say, well, let's do this and let's do this and let's do this. And sometimes it's too on the nose. And if it's too on the nose, it'll take the whole song down. So there's a fine line you've got to, you know, you've got to be on. It's interesting you mentioned something there because it, 
Senses Working Overtime is an interesting song for um, it stylistically shifts all the time. And I always thought that the beginning was almost Pictish. Like it was like tribal, like, you know, hey, hey, life, I stay. And it's a very, it's very much uh, the Druids rocking. Uh, and then, and then all of a sudden the who, the who arrives. All of a sudden, all of a sudden it's Pete Townsend and all the world is, and he's, you can just see Roger Daltrey swinging a microphone. And then, and then the chorus is like, uh, you know, classic jangle rock, you know, um, and so the pre-chorus is the who, you know, and it's like, I, I think in a weird way, Andy wants you to feel those color shifts, you know, because mm-hmm. he's saying we're starting in a primal state and then we're, then we're recognizing the potential of our, you know, youth and everything like that. So all the world is football shaped for me to kick in space. And then, and then suddenly the celebratory moment of going, I've got these senses working overtime and this, this widescreen. <laughs> That's a know? brilliant assessment. That, I mean, that I, I'd never thought of that either, but it really I is true. Until, I waited until I was on an XTC podcast to talk about this. <laughs> I feel like I'm at an AA meeting or something. <laughs> In the um, in what do you call that noise? The book David Yazbek talks about burning with optimism's flames and the line reaching to the ground and all around like an Navajo blanket, which uh, with the melody that goes with it is like a blanket that's like the melody itself is reaching to the ground and all around like a Navajo, yeah. and it doesn't quite finish, and it's a bit like a sort yeah. of thread of a, of a, and it's you can't, it's exactly as Melanie says, says you can't separate the two things; they're, yeah, they're yeah. interchangeable. And I, and I and I don't know whether Brian felt that when covering Wake Up, but I think there aren't that many examples of xdc cover versions that break away from the the, the music and the lyrics and the, the, like the formula that's been laid down because the because it's quite difficult to do the the song the song is all the component parts it's not it's not just like there's a series of chords with a tune on top of it i mean if you're going to re-record let's say you you take on you know years ago somebody re uh, uh, i think uh, who who directed uh, the psycho remake you know and did it shot for shot you know oh yeah, yeah. and you go okay mm-hmm. well i can understand doing that because if i had the opportunity and the money and you know to be able to go in to re-record you know rubber soul or something or i would do it you know shot for shot i do the instrument that's the way that i want to yeah. do it you know what I mean? That's how I would yeah. want to redo it. I wouldn't want to redo it in my own way. For me, with Wake Up, it was like, well, this is an opportunity to kind of mix the two, kind of bridge that gap between, you know, uh, between what was going on in Britain and Brit pop and, you know, and Collins there, but uh, that and what we were doing at the same time mm-hmm. when, you know, the post grunge thing was happening. So I took advantage of that opportunity. Um, and I can't think, yeah, I can't think of anybody else that really took it so far, farther than we did. I'm not even sure how, I don't think Andy and I discussed that either. I'm not even sure how he felt about that, you know, but. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder what it would be like to do, um, like some of, okay, some of the XTC songs sort of feel like their era, like Wonderland to me is you could feel that they're attempting a certain vibe. And I wonder what that song would sound like. I'm, I'm going to jump in before you've got to the end of your yeah, sentence because because T- TC and I, which was uh, Colin and, and Terry uh, playing live together in Swindon for about uh, seven or eight gigs yeah. uh, quite recently, a couple of years ago, uh, yeah. they, they did do Wonderland and uh, there was a fantastic funky bass that 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 came out in the, uh, in the mix. I, th- I think it was just a different yeah. line that, that Colin brought out. But it was it was like there was a a different song that was that that, that was sitting in there. So yeah, yeah. But I, I know what you mean. And I th- I, th- I sometimes think with XTC, it's because because they were sort of out of fashion. They were never in fashion. That they sort of <laughs> transcend yeah. fashion over the years, so that so that you can't quite place 
you might hear a Lindrum or something on Big Express, but you, you, it's quite difficult to, to get the exact era, which I think is why a lot of younger people are discovering them even now and not finding them too an anachronistic. That's a fair assessment. Yeah. I'm wondering, Brian, having, having had that fantastic experience collaborating with Andy, did, did, did the experience uh, affect your songwriting after that? Did it change the way you thought about it? It taught me to put myself out there, <clears throat> to not be afraid to just go for it, 100%. Like I said, to, to watch him just come up with a little riff right away and just belt it out. And the energy that was behind that in front of a stranger, a kid, you know, in his presence, uh, you know, uh, to just go out there and do it. They're just songs. You know what I mean? And, and in the infant state of those songs, they're, they're babies and you just have to get them out, push them out. <laughs> and once they're out, guide them into, you know, the adults they become, you know, and it's, I feel that I feel that to this day. I mean, I still call upon that time when I spent, you know, that, that time in the music shed with him. Um, and think of it in that way as well, that you just have to put it out there and see what happens and then listen to the tape. And then you can go, well, that's crap, you know, or whatever later. Uh, or you can listen to the tape that I have of he and I and go, God damn, he wrote so many brilliant things, even on this tape that we haven't even explored yet. <laughs> you know. What do you call that noise? I'm just curious, what are your personal favorite power pop bands? To me, the, the, uh, the, like I said, there are bands that are not always power pop, but I, obviously when, when um, the records were one of my first band, favorite bands, they did like, you know, um, Tina Rama and uh, Starry Eyes. And I also liked Graham Tchaikovsky. I liked the Raspberries, but I can't stand the guy now. Um, but um <laughs> And uh, B Bad Fingers Baby Blue was one of the first songs. And also, um, No Matter What was one of the first songs, you know, that I, I loved. And also, yeah. uh, also Cheap Trick, when they, when they are, when they're threading their Beatle thread through their Midwestern rock thread, they become, to me, one of the greatest power pop bands with songs like Surrender. So, I mean, there's more, but I, I feel like I'm hogging the mic. So you're, you've, you've edited the book, the books, you're allowed to mention every band that's in them. <laughs> You know, it's funny you say you said that about Fountains of Wayne and how they didn't want to be defined as power pop. But I have to say right. in the last, you know, from the time from 19, you know, from the, when uh, Radiation Vibe came out and beyond. Yeah. For me, that they really were in my top power pop bands, you know. And when Utopia Parkway came out, I was blown yeah. away. I was like, this is mm -hmm. what I want to do, you know. And we were fortunate to be able to work with Adam, but that that album just blew me away. So they actually, you know, to go later in the, you know, the decades of power pop, um, I would say Fountains of Wayne ended up being one of my favorites, if not my me too. favorite. Me too, you, you know? know. And Adam, Adam just like had a knack for, uh, no pun intended, but he had a knack for power pop, and uh, oh, so sad about Adam, man. Just it's just like it was a punch in the gut, wasn't it? It really brought it home for me. Like he was the first guy I knew that died from it. Yeah, and mm -hmm. he was the first, and then uh, weeks later, Hal Wildner died, who I also knew, who was a musical sort of producer, uh, curator, and I knew him through my brother, who was on SNL with him. So that's, but and uh, both of those guys were going to be on my podcast. Uh, we'd been emailing. And then, uh, you know, a month or so before they got sick. So I didn't really follow through and, you know, it couldn't because they got sick. So, hey, you know, John Holbrook uh, 
produced that underneath or engineered that underneath the record with Adam. So I got the opportunity to work with John. Oh, and cool. then he produced my first solo record. He he was a gem. I mean, he's a gem. Oh, yeah. He's still alive. He's a gem. You John know, the guy yeah, is yeah. amazing. But to work with him was uh, was a pleasure as well. Talk about a guy that's, uh, you know, gracious and uh, And John Holbrook did a lot of work at Utopia uh, Sound and, and various Bearsville-type places as well, right? Yeah. Can you believe yeah. I, I had the opportunity to go to Bearsville to work with him? And I said, no, you got to come to Grand Rapids, John. I made him come all the way to Grand Rapids with his gear. <laughs> I, you know, there's something to be said for that, though. I mean, you know, it's funny because, you know, Matthew Sweet moved back to uh, um, Nebraska. And uh, Matthew Sweet's another great power pop star, Agreed. by the way. Oh, Agreed. I, was, yes. I would, yes. I would Agreed. say Girl, Girlfriend is one of the great yep. power pop songs. Yep. And Sick of Myself. Uh, mm-hmm. Sick of Myself, I played that in a... Uh, you know, one of those things where you get up to play people's songs and it wasn't, wasn't a Matthew Sweet night, but it was like, pick your favorite cover to do. And it's such an easy song to play, but it's, you know, and big stars, September girls is mm-hmm. another one. So oh, I haven't answered my bit yet. And I'm just thinking, yeah. I would say it's actually in my head. And this is, it's interesting having this conversation to work out what power pop actually is, but in my head it's it, it's not one band in particular, but it's just a sort of moment around, I guess, 1979, 1980, uh, when, in the UK charts, you would have the jam were number one every every five minutes, it seemed, with hit after hit after after hit. Mm. Uh, I've mentioned Blondie already, mm. uh, Squeeze are in uh, Squeeze covered in your oh, book. You know, all, all, all of these people who are marrying a sort of tough guitar-ish sound with a, a pop sensibility. And 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 and, and so I, w- I wouldn't necessarily listen to their albums, but I would I could tell you all their singles. But it's also, you know, right. when I look at the power pop bands, I think to myself, are there really power pop? There are some, you know, uh, definitive power pop bands, but mostly for me, it's about power pop songs. You know, it's about a song that comes mm-hmm. out that you mm-hmm. hear over the over the band. You know, and and you yeah. know, even even uh, you know, Badfinger we consider to be a great uh, power pop band. There were songs that weren't power pop on. You know what I mean? So I like I to think of it I as a, a a genre of song. Uh, well, the Beatles, the Beatles did She Said, She Said, which to me is a power pop song. Right. Agreed. But the, the Beatles aren't all power pop. And the Who did, you know, um, uh, uh, Kids Are All Right is a power pop song to me. Yep. You know, but I don't know if you would say that Won't Get Fooled Again is a power pop song. Right. Exactly. <laughs> well, there's so many XTC songs that weren't power pop songs, yeah, you know, absolutely. including Love and a Farm Boy's Wages, you know. <laughs> But then there, but then there's Are You Receiving Me, uh, Radios in Motion, right. and uh, and you know Adam Age even like you know the mm-hmm. like those are power pop songs to me in the same way that Buzzcocks, uh, you know, or, you know Buzzcocks could be power pop as right. well. And I just remember the un- the undertones as well has just come into my head. Oh, um, yes. What's 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 your answer to the question, Melanie? Oh, you've you've mentioned so many of the ones that I absolutely adore. You know, I'll throw in. Utopia, The Cars, Weezer, I mean, depending on the time frame. The Knack, I was a huge Knack fan. Still am. Um, you mentioned The Jam, Bram Tchaikovsky, all of those. Just mm, yeah. love them, love them. The, mo- the, the motors are in that group, right? Like the motor, like Bram Tchaikovsky and the motors seem to be together, you know? like I'm not familiar with the motors. Oh, you should check them out. Check, yeah. Dancing, Definitely. They did, they did Dancing the Night Away, Cheap Trick covered it later. But, okay, uh, cool. Yeah. Cool. I do like an, a, a de- the definition that you've come up with, though, uh, Paul, at the start. It's just pretty much it can be anything you want it to be. Well, actually, um, I wasn't going to read the whole thing, but there, there's a paragraph that I have in, in the introduction that says, uh, for me, explaining the meaning of power pop is a little like explaining what love is. You know it when you feel it, but damn if it's not different for everyone who experiences experiences mm. it. And then I go on just a much longer 
part, but uh... nice. So, Paul, uh, the book is called Go Further More Literary Appreciations of Power Pop. Where can people get it and when's it available? Uh, this book, uh, Go Further, is available in May from Rare Bird, uh, Rare Bird Press or Rare Bird Books. I'm not sure. And uh, it's, I, I think you can order it now if you go to the Rare Bird website or go to your, your Amazon. But also ask yep. your indie, indie booksellers, you know, ask indie booksellers because we like to keep them going, especially at this time. So. Yeah, yeah. And and Brian, at this time, it has been a, a tough time in lockdown for many, many people, but for artists in particular, if you're used to getting out and playing on the road, all the rest of it, if, if for musicians it's, and, and not just musicians, but technicians and, and everybody who keeps the show on the road, have, has it been a creative time for you? Absolutely. This was the universe's way of telling me to sit down and write and work. And I write every day. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we've got, a, we've got two new albums coming out that are COVID inspired, wow. you know? So it's like, you yeah. know, this is a, this is the, per- was the perfect time. And again, that's the way universe works for me. You just have to listen and go, okay, well, this is the time to roll up your sleeves. And sure, I got to dip into my IRA a little bit, but uh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make some music. So, um, so it's been a very creative time. And awesome. any, any, any release dates? Uh, we have a new album that should be coming out. I'm very hopeful. We, we, we put out singles. Uh, we'll put out a single a month uh, on our own on social media, and then we'll put the album out after uh, six months. So I'm going to say the new album will be out in June, but look for singles here uh, within the next 60 days. Remember where you heard it first. Paul, Brian, Melanie, thank you very, very much. It's been great talking to you. What a pleasure. I thank had a you. great time. Thank you so much. It was great. What do you call that noise? Why do you call that noise? To order Go Further, More Literary Appreciations of Power Pop by Paul Myers and S.W. Loudon, go to rarebirdlit.com. Rarebirdlit.com. You can get up to date with Brian van der Ark at brianvanderark.com. And if you click on the streaming tab, you can hear Brian's cover of The Mayor of Simpleton on Planet Sunday Sessions, Volume 2. You can find my XDC books and T-shirts at xdclimelight.com. Thanks again to Brian, Paul and Melanie and to Julie Matthews for her drink recommendation. For making the podcast possible, thank you to all the supporters on Patreon, including the following nights in Shining Karma. Terry Arnott, Dan Barrow, Matt Bell, Kevin Burt, Liam Duggan, Jamie Dunn, Helen Fay, Leslie Gooch, Robert Graham, Jesper Cumberg, Robert Lawlor, Dennis LeCourier, Liz Lynch, Amy Parkinson, Marie Meikle, Yusuf Murra, Kevin Murray, Karen Neal, James Newell, Mark Reed, James Reimer, Simon Slatome, Michael Sutcliffe, Mark Thomas, Nigel Waller, and William Wilkstrom. If you'd like to support the XDC podcast, and why wouldn't you? You can do so at patreon.com forward slash Mark Fisher. I'll see you again next time. Thanks for listening. What do you call that noise? Head to xdclimelight.com where you can buy my two XTC books. First, there's the XTC Bumper Book of Fun for Boys and Girls, which is an anthology of Limelight, the XTC fanzine I made from 1982 to 1992. We had a couple of lifelines to the world, and, and Limelight was one of them. So the book is the XTC Bumper Book of Fun for Boys and Girls. It's stunning. Thank you, Ian Lee. And then there's What Do You Call That Noise, an XTC discovery book, where you'll find more from the band, plus commentary from musicians, including Anton Barbo. For me, it's just simply a life-changing song. And McHugh. It's like 
a painting by Van Gogh. Jason Faulkner. XTC probably made the most impact on me of, of any band that I can think of. Chris Butler. If there's anything more classic XTC, this is it. And Rick Butler. It was well produced as well. It had, it had the support of a great producer. I mean, it really sounded strong. Order your copies of both books at xtclimelight.com. It's a paper and ink net, the internet with, but with added staples.